0: We're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to be looking specifically at verses 8 through 12, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, the title of our lesson tonight, Living the Good Life. I would imagine that most of us aspire to live a good life, and by that I mean we want to live a quality life. I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody ask Jared how he's doing, and his response is always living the dream. Isn't that what all of us desire? To live the dream, to have a good life. It might be the case that your life right now could be summed up, must be my voice. But I suspect that all of us, we want to live the good life. It might be the case that you're living the good life. Your life is a dream, a dream come true. On the other hand, it might be that you want to live a good life. You want to have a quality life. You aspire to live the dream. I want you to know it's possible. Because the Bible says it's possible. So with that in mind, I want us to look at 1 Peter chapter 3. And really, our lesson tonight is very simple. There are two basic points. The first has to do with the behavior of a Christian. And really, our behavior, how we live, sets us up for a good life. So I want to begin by talking about the behavior of a a Christian... And then secondly, we're going to talk about the blessings of a Christian, because I believe that a Christian life is a blessed life. And I think the Bible makes that abundantly clear. And so in our lesson tonight, as we think about our conduct, our behavior, I want to set before you ten principles that I believe will help you live a good life. Now, I know right off the bat you're probably thinking, ten things. It's a lot of material. Well, it could be a lot of material. It is a lot of material, but for the sake of time we're going to try to condense it and try to get this lesson in on time. So I want you to think about these ten principles, these ten really rock-solid principles that will help you live a good life. First, I want to talk about faithful in fellowship. Listen, if you would, to what Peter said beginning in verse 8. He had been talking about living a submissive life. In the context, he had talked about the submission of Jesus, the submission of servants to their masters. In chapter 3, he talks about the submission of the wife to the husband. And so down in verse 8, He said, Finally, all of you be of one mind. One of the things that is abundantly clear in Scripture is God wants us to be united in purpose. He wants us to be united in thought. His desire is that there would be a strong cord of unity pervading His body. And the only way that can be achieved is for those of us who belong to the body of Christ to fervently work for unity, to strive to the best of our ability to be faithful in the fellowship that we enjoy with one another. You remember back in Acts chapter 2 when the early church got off the ground. Matter of fact, in Acts chapter 2 we have the birth of, of the New Testament church. And in verse 42 it says, They continued steadfastly in fellowship. Fellowship is a great blessing. And I'm grateful that those of us who belong to the body of Christ are in fellowship with one another. And you think about the strength that we draw from one another. And the fact that we're not to live in isolation, but rather we are a community of believers. And there is strength in numbers, isn't there? Many years ago the psalmist said, Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. There's nothing more beautiful than when you see a church that is united in her efforts. When a church is pulling together, working together, worshiping together, serving together, it makes for a very beautiful picture. The flip side of that is it can be a very ugly picture when people are not on the same page. In Ephesians chapter 4, if you look at the book of Ephesians, you could really break the book down into two, really into two parts. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul talks about the redemptive plan of God in Christ. And he points out that we enjoy reconciliation in Christ, in His body, according to Ephesians 2.16. In chapters 4 through 6, in a very practical way, he stresses our relationship to Christ and the responsibilities that we have in Christ. And so in chapter 4, he begins by addressing those of us that are members of the body of Christ. He talks about the qualities or the characteristics that we ought to demonstrate to one another. And in that context, he talks about lowliness or humility and gentleness, long-suffering. And he said, bearing with one another in love or forbearing with one another. In verse 3, he said, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so what he's saying is, As a church, we have to endeavor to be united, don't we? It's not by accident, but rather, we have to be united in our efforts to serve the Lord. So, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Number one, all of you be of one mind. In other words, you be faithful in your fellowship. There's a second characteristic here. And that is, he says, you need to cultivate compassion. Note if you would. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. One writer has said that compassion means gut-level sympathy. Jesus was compassionate, wasn't He? Do you remember in Mark chapter 1, the Bible talks about a leper that came to Jesus, and you can just imagine the scourge of leprosy in the first century. Those who were lepers were outcasts. They lived a lonely solitary existence in many respects. The disease gnawed away at their flesh, their nerve endings. So here's a leper that comes to Jesus and he kneels before Him and he says, Lord, if You're willing, You can can make me clean. And the Bible says that Jesus was moved with compassion. Don't you think that When we talk about our conduct in Christ, our behavior as a Christian, that we ought to strive for unity and that we ought to be compassionate towards one another, to have a compassionate heart. I think about individuals that have physical, material, and spiritual needs. It takes a heart of compassion to reach out to those people, doesn't it? Look at the life of Jesus. I would encourage you this week, go back and read, or go back and look through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And note, if you would, the compassion that Jesus demonstrated to people time and again. And the thing that stands out, Jesus oftentimes reached out to those people that we would classify as disenfranchised, individuals that had been kicked to the curb, so to speak, people that were looked down upon because of their race. There were all of these barriers and yet Jesus sought to reach them, to touch them, didn't He? Time and again. I think about Zacchaeus in Luke 19, the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, two examples. There's a third thing. He said love is brethren. The idea here is to live in love. Now we talk about the brotherhood at large, there's the church universally. And then there is the local congregation. We make up an autonomous congregation, the church that meets at Olive Branch. And there are congregations all around the globe. But universally speaking, we are a brotherhood of believers, aren't we? So I want you to listen to what Peter said back in verse 17 of chapter 2. He said, honor all people, and then listen, love the brotherhood. Shouldn't we love the brotherhood? We are members of the body of Christ. We talk about the church. Sometimes people think of the church as the building, the brick, the mortar. The church isn't a building. The church is the people. So when we talk about loving the brotherhood, we're talking about loving the people. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to love one another. In John chapter 13, when Jesus taught the disciples, the apostles, the importance of servant, servanthood. You remember He washed their feet. And in that context, Jesus said, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. Was loving one another a new command to those that had a a Hebrew background, a Jewish background? No. The newness of the command was the depth in which they were to love one another. Jesus said, as I have loved you, you are to love one another. In 1 John chapter 4, and John is known as the apostle of love. John said in 1 John chapter 4 verse 8, God is love. And he said, beloved, let us love one another, why? For love is of God. He that loves not knows not God, why? Because God is love. And so, vertically we love God, don't we? Our love is to deb- to be directed toward God. We are to love Him with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Jesus said, this is the first and great commandment. But He said, a second like unto it is this. We are to love horizontally, aren't we? We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now think about that. In a very practical way, Peter is talking about some principles that will help us enjoy the good life. Well, what are those principles? Well, number one, we're united. We are faithful in our fellowship. There's a sense of cohesion. And then secondly, we're cultivating a spirit of compassion. We're compassionate toward one another. Then thirdly, we're loving in our actions, in our words. As a matter of fact, John would say in 1 John chapter 3, we're not to love in word only, but in deed and truth. In other words, Jesus is saying, you prove your love by how you treat other people, don't you? There's a fourth principle, and that is try to be tender-hearted. Listen to him. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion of one another, love his brethren, and then he said, be tender-hearted. One writer says this means to be moved by the plight of others. Are there people that are hurting that you know? There's not a day that goes by on planet Earth when somebody, somewhere, sometime is not hurting. And there are a lot of times within the church that people are hurting on a daily basis. I can promise you that rarely does a day go by that somebody in this congregation is not hurting in some way. Is it possible that we can be moved by the plight of other people? to reach out to them, to be tender-hearted? I think about the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, when he said, Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, forgave you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talks about God. He identifies Him as the God of all comfort, the Father of all mercies. And he said, Who comforts us in all our tribulation. One of the purposes of God comforting us is so that we might be able to comfort others by the same comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. So you think about people that are suffering and struggling in life. It may be the case that you've been there. You know what they're going through. And you understand. And so you're moved by the experiences that they're facing, and you reach out and try to help them. And then there is a fifth principle, and that is to have a heart of humility. Peter said, be courteous. Humility says it's not always about me. One of the things I think that we need to learn in the church, is it's not always about us. Christianity is about serving other people. There are some folks, they live to be served. And what Jesus is saying is, we must live to serve. Did Jesus not come to serve? As a matter of fact, when you look at the life of Jesus, think about the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 2. When he said, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, counted not, being on an equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Jesus came to serve. And so in a very humble way, we seek to serve the needs of other people. We're not too proud. Think about Jesus in John chapter 13. You remember? When Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, this menial task. They should have been washing His feet, but what does He do? He stoops down and begins washing their dirty, dusty feet. Christianity is about surface. Sometimes folks that ought to know better when it comes to surface feel like the world orbits around them, don't they? It's all about them. And they're always looking for others to do for them. When the question might be asked, what are you doing for other people? And so, Paul would say in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. In verse 10 he said, let us as we have opportunity do good unto all men, especially those who are of the household of faith. Here's a sixth principle. Refuse to retaliate. Listen now to verse 9. Peter said, Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Now let me give you an example of somebody who demonstrated this principle. Go back and look at verse 21 of chapter 2. Peter said, For to this you are called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. He said that you should follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was guile found in his mouth, no deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, Peter said, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. You know, one of the most difficult things in life is to turn the other cheek. How many times when, in our dealings with people, somebody says something or does something inflammatory, and we become angered, and before you know it, what do we have? We've got a scorecard, don't we? And we're keeping score. You know what the Bible says? Let God be the scorekeeper. Let Him handle it. In Romans chapter 12, Paul encourages the saints in Rome to not retaliate. And he said, speaking on behalf of God, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He said, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him a drink. He said, in so doing, you will heap coals of fire upon his head. And then he said, be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. What's Paul saying? He's saying rather than trying to level the playing field or trying to level the score, so to speak, he said, you turn it over to God. I think sometimes we forget God sees all, He knows all, doesn't He? Remember what? Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 15, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. If somebody mistreats you, God knows about that. If somebody says something cutting to you, God knows about that. If somebody hurts you or stabs you in the back, God knows about that. Rather than trying to get even or take that knife and jab it back, what what Peter's saying, what Paul is saying is, you don't act that way. Why? Because you're a Christian. Now, you think about these principles. These are ironclad principles, aren't they? What Peter is saying is, look, if we learn to put these principles into practice, you know what, we're going to have a good life. We're going to live the dream, so to speak. Because when you disobey what Peter is instructing here, then you create a lot of trouble. A lot of problems, a lot of heartache. There's a seventh principle. And really we pick up in verse 10 and the the Apostle Peter quotes now the words of David from the Psalms. So listen to what he says. For he who would love life and see good days. I've asked the question before, is there anything wrong with loving life? Don't you think God wants us to enjoy life? Don't you think God is interested in your well being? Look, God wants us to be happy. And Peter, here, in going back and quoting the Psalms, is basically saying, Look, you want to love life? You want to see some good days? Then here's what you need to do. Here's some things that you need to do that are going to help you love life and see good days. So number seven, here it is. Tie the tongue. Did you hear that? Tie the tongue. Listen again. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile or deceit. You know, there are some folks that, boy, they have an assassin's tongue, don't they? They are verbal assassins. And they can literally tear somebody up with the tongue. I'd encourage you to read the book of James this week. Read James chapter 1 and James chapter 3, and note the emphasis on the tongue. James said, if anyone thinks himself to be re- religious, but bridles not his tongue. He said, this man's religion is vain or useless. In James chapter 3, James talks about that little member in the human body called the tongue. You know what he said? It welds great things, great power. The tongue can be used for good or evil. A lot of times we get ourselves in trouble when we don't tie the tongue when we don't tame the tongue. I understand it can be very difficult, especially when you want to say something and you really intend to let somebody know how you feel or what you think. What, what Peter is saying is, Look, there's a lot to be said for saying nothing. Do you remember Solomon? Solomon is spoken of as a man of great wisdom. The queen of Sheba came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And she said the half hasn't been told. Solomon in that little book called Ecclesiastes said, there is a time to speak. You remember the the next part? And a time to be silent. Sometimes, you know what the best thing to say is? Don't say a word. You ever heard the expression, zip it? Sometimes, we need to learn to zip it. Don't say anything. Look, Peter's trying to help us. You can go back and you can read the Psalms and you can look at what David had to say. And all we're saying in this this lesson tonight is, look, there is a good life, there's a bad life. The good life can be enjoyed if we'll just follow some biblical principles. Learn to tie the tongue. There's another principle, number eight, and that is to evade evil. Listen now to what Peter said, let him turn away from evil. There are two things that get us in trouble sometimes. Number one, evil associations. Evil associations will oftentimes lead to evil activities. So you know what the Bible says? Stay away from both of them. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, in verse 22, Paul said, abstain from the very appearance of evil. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, Paul said, be not deceived, evil companionship corrupts good morals. There are a lot of young folks in our world today that are off track not where they need to be. You know why? Because they got in with the wrong crowd, and before you know it, they were doing the wrong thing. I don't know if you read the article or a series of articles this past week about a former National League football player that took his life in prison. And I have read a number of articles about his life, 27 years of age. All pro. Played in the Super Bowl. Had life, as we would say it, by the tail. Could have lived the good life. And so they were trying to piece together his life and trying to figure out how did this guy that was an all pro football player, how did he end up in prison for murder? At least... Five murders tied to him just a week or so ago. Two murders, two counts dismissed. But nonetheless, you look at his life, and they were talking about as a 16-year-old boy, his father died. And the influences that were around him, and as he went to college, the influences that were around him then and in reading about his life, two things stood out to me. They stand out as I speak now. Number one, evil associations coupled with evil activities, and there you have it, a recipe for disaster. Do you know this guy signed a contract in about 2012, 2013, before he was... Before he was arrested for double homicide, a $40 million contract. Can you imagine signing a contract for $40 million? You've got life going your way, but you get in with the wrong crowd, and you start doing the wrong thing, and before you know it, your life is a mess. Sad, sad story. So I would simply say, evade evil. Number nine, generate good. Listen to him. He says, let him turn away from evil and do good. It was said of Jesus in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, that He went about doing good. If you want to enjoy a good life, let me tell you what. If you'll try to serve others and do for others, I promise you, you'll feel better than the people you help, the people you minister to. I can't tell you the number of people that I've visited. I can't tell you the number of people that I've been, I've been with them, and their bodies are broken down, their spirit is crushed, they're hurting, they're suffering. And I go in to encourage them, and when I leave, I've been encouraged. They've encouraged me. You would be surprised at how much serving others will do for you. Send a card, make a telephone call, pay a visit, take a meal, do whatever. But I promise you, you'll find joy in serving others. And then notice, if you would, verse 11, the latter part, pursue peace. He said, let him seek peace and pursue it. Paul said in Romans chapter 12, he said, live peaceably with all men. Isn't that our goal? Do you think people in the world who are warring and fighting, with one another, do you think they're enjoying life? People whose lives are filled with bitterness and hatred and wrath and anger and all these other things, do you think they're really enjoying life? No, not at all. Did you know that Jesus is described by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 as the Prince of Peace? And did you know that Jesus as the Prince of Peace came to give us peace? And that Jesus said, blessed are what? The peacemakers ought to be people that are seeking peace. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew writer said that we ought to follow after peace and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Peace is important. Now, very quickly, the blessings of a Christian. This has to do with our caretaker. I want to just very quickly call attention to our rich provisions in the Lord. First, Peter says the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Secondly, he's going to say the ears of the Lord are open to the righteous. Listen to him. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. One writer has well said, and I think he he makes a great statement. He said in this phrase, what God or what Peter is stressing, is God's continual guardianship and care. Think about that for a minute. Did you know that as a Christian, God is our guardian? He's our caretaker? His eyes are always upon us, are they not? Back in Psalm 46, you might want to go back and read Psalm 46, the psalmist said, God is a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And in that psalm, he talks about all of this upheaval that's going on in the world. And in the midst of all of this upheaval, there is refuge in God. Two times in Psalm 46, in verse 7 and verse 11, here's what the psalmist said, The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our refuge. Two times. Don't you think he's enforcing, reinforcing a great truth? That there is this constant guardianship, This consistent daily care provided us by Almighty God. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks about the birds, the fowls of the air. He said, they don't sow, they don't reap, nor gather in barns. He said, but your heavenly Father feeds them. Now the question is, are we not more valuable than they? The answer is yes. And then, what about his ears? Listen to him very quickly. He said, his ears are open to their prayers. There's no way that you and I could put a premium on the privilege and the power of prayer. You think about it as a child of God. Here's what Peter's saying. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and His ears are open to your prayers. That's your prayers, my prayers. Peter's saying, look, God hears us, the privilege of prayer. One of the great spiritual blessings that we enjoy as a Christian is prayer, isn't it? The Bible says that we are to pray without ceasing. Jesus said, Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened. Jesus said that men ought to always pray and not faint. And then we ask the question, Well, how powerful is prayer in our lives? Do you believe in the power of prayer? Have you seen prayer work in your life? James said, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man. Listen to him. He said, It avails much. In other words, There's power in prayer, isn't there? So, God is our caretaker. and we talk about the blessings that we have in the Lord, number one, you've got to remember, the Lord's eyes are over the righteous. That's you. The Lord's ears are open to the righteous. That's you. So we want to talk about living a good life, living the dream. It's right here. Could I close by saying this? If someone never obeyed the gospel, never became a follower of Christ, but simply took the principles of Scripture, made application to his or or her own life. You know what? They'd live a blessed life, wouldn't they, in many respects. Now, granted, they wouldn't have the Lord in their life, but you think about the principles of living. You take those principles, you make application to your life, you live them out every day. Let me tell you what, it'd make you a good person, make you a blessed person. In closing tonight, I hope you're living a good life. I'm well, I'm well aware of the fact that there are a whole lot of people in our world, and sadly some in the church who aren't living the good life. They're not living the dream. What I want you to see is, is right here. It's transparent. All you've got to do is take this book and make application. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7? He talked about the wise man who heard the word and did it. He compared him to the man that built his house on the rock. And he said, the rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat upon that house. And he said, it didn't fall. Why? Because it was founded upon the rock. Is your life founded on the rock of God's word? If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, let me tell you, we're here. To assist you to become a child of God tonight. What would you need to do? Believe Jesus to be the Son of God, John 8.24. Repent of your sins, Luke 13.3. Confess His name before others, Acts 8 37. Be baptized into Christ so that all your sins can be washed away, Acts 22.16. If you'll do that, God will put you in the body, Acts two forty seven. If you're faithful to death, the promise is the crown of life. If you're here tonight, and maybe you need to get things straightened out in your life, you're not living a good life. Your life's a mess, and you need help. We're here to help. We're here to pray with you and for you, and God will abundantly pardon 1 John 1, 9. Won't you come as we stand and sing?